Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Today, we have a very special guest. I always enjoy my conversations with him, Lawrence Lepard. But before I bring him up on the show, I want to give a very special shout out to the amazing Bitcoin companies that make the show possible. If you already haven't already done so, check out swanbitcoin.com. Best place to buy Bitcoin, built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoin, swanbitcoin.com. And of course, you don't want to miss Bitcoin 2023 in Miami Beach, Florida, May 18th to the 20th. Uh, it's the biggest Bitcoin conference in the world. You can use the promo code SIMPLY to get a big discount on your tickets. Anyways, that being said, Lawrence, welcome back to the show. Super happy to have you. Last time we had a conversation, I was at Bitcoin Magazine headquarters in Nashville. And it was, a, it was one of my favorite podcasts that I've had in a long time. So I'm very happy that you're back. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me back, Nico. I always enjoy talking to you. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, so I'm, I always say this every show, but, you know, guys, I don't like to beat around the bush. So just, we're going to jump straight into it, skip the small talk. Lawrence, where's the recession? Everyone thought there was going to be a recession. Everyone was expecting that there was going to be a recession. Where is it? Is it still coming? Did it's we do coming. the so-called soft landing? Yeah, it's coming. I don't think we're going to have a soft landing. I, I disagree with that. Um, yeah, it, it's basically, I mean, it depends on where you are in the, in the stack, right? I mean, for, I think for middle income people, it's here, right? I mean, they're, they're having a hard time paying the bills. You can see the credit card gro debt growth. Uh, a lot of people are surviving using their credit cards. Um, and, um, you know, even, even the growth that we see, I mean, if you have a 3% GDP growth, but you've got 8% inflation, that really means that you ship 5% less goods. You just the, the three was the difference it was the inflation rate, right? You're, you know, the, the, the gross number is changing, but the unit numbers are going down. So we're in a recession already. Uh, you're seeing it housing for sure. You're starting to see it in cars, although ironically, I mean, there's there are a lot of cross currents here, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of, of fear and I'm seeing this everywhere I go. Anyone who's looking at buying something, they're a little bit afraid of, you know, in, in the past, you think, well, I'll wait and the prices will come down. And they're a little afraid of that. I mean, I, I just had a friend who just bought a place, a house, and he was like, well, you know, gosh, I don't know. I, you know, maybe they, maybe things will come down. Maybe they won't. We're kind of in an inflationary environment, and I think prices might continue to go up. So I probably ought to just buy it, um, you know. So it, it's, a, it's a tricky, tricky macro environment right now. Yeah. Very, very difficult. Absolutely. Then how, you know, specifically, like, how are people supposed to live? Like, it, you know, the, the, I was looking at the official, you know, statistics provided by the Fed and housing prices over the last two or three years basically have doubled. Um, right. Of course, if you own assets, you're very happy about that. Right. But if you're like the majority of people, uh, you can't even afford a home, which is, you know, insane. No, that's, that's right. I mean, and, and, you know, I think the only way people are able to make it is by taking on more debt. And, uh, and you know, that's, that's fiat land, right? I mean, fiat land is built and premised upon putting, on, putting debt on top of debt. And, you know, the, the biggest, one of the biggest macro events of the last couple of quarters that I've seen is, you know, just the growth in credit card debt. It's gone straight up. And, and by the way, that's not cheap debt. If you're, if you're revolving it, if you're not paying it all off, you know, you've, you've got, I mean, the average credit card rate is, is, I think, crept up close to 20%, whereas it used to be substantially below that, more like 12, 15. So uh, you get deep in debt and you've got, you know, those recurring charges. I mean, it's a, 
it's a debt spiral. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about that because the federal government's having the same experience. Right? So let's talk about it. <laughs> what, is, what, right. what is this debt spiral that you speak of, Lawrence? Yeah, well, I, I hope you're good at pulling up charts. Maybe you can pull up the, uh, the chart that shows the federal interest expense. Um, Absolutely. U.S. federal government interest expense. I mean, I, I love this one, right? I mean, the, you know, um, the Fed in increasing interest rates, I think, doesn't necessarily understand the second order effect, which is it's going to increase the borrowing cost of the government as well. And as a result, the government, um, uh, yeah, that's that's a good one. Right. So, yeah, take a look at that. Right. So this is this is U.S. federal government current expenditures, interest payments. Look at what's going on as a result of the rise in rates. And, uh, um, you know, we're, we're running, I think on there, it's showing kind of a yeah, 800 plus million rate headed to a trillion. I mean, look, the, the, you know, the federal taxes are, you know, in the four trillion range. I mean, we're getting to the point where the deficit is just going to blow out on interest alone, not to mention the fact that, you know, cost of living adjustments for Social Security last year was 8.9% and probably be high again this year. So the you know the government is in a debt doom loop, which is what happens when you get to the end of a, a sovereign debt crisis, um, and um, you know that's it's messy, and uh, you know we don't know if there's going to be deflation or inflation or both. I mean, there's been a little bit of deflation in some of the sound money assets, which has been a bummer the last six months to a year or two. But um, you know, I, I think in general, it's safe to say that. Uh, uh, you know, the, um, the trends are all running heavily inflationary and will continue to do so. I mean, um, I have to say, even I've been shocked by how, um, how inflation has persisted. I thought we'd at least start to see some year over year comps that would bring inflation down. And we really haven't seen much of that. Right. And if, if it's, you know, if they raise rates to 5% or they're just below that now, but if they get to five and, and that's not doing it, they're going to have to go higher and you know things the, those interest rates are already feeding into the cost of everything in the economy and you know feeding into everybody's pocketbook and so it's going to be a mess uh, it, it is going to be a mess and and i you know i reject the soft landing i reject the you know the that we're not in a recession we're in it we're definitely in a recession i mean ask the average person in this country how they feel about the finances and they will say we are in a recession no doubt and and the sad part is, I don't think the final shoe has really dropped. And in my opinion, the final shoe, or not the final shoe, but the next shoe will be the stock market. Um, the stock market, you know, we were in the largest bubble since, well, largest bubble ever, really. It, it measured in, you know, certain terms like, you know, uh, asset values to GDP. And as a result of that, you know, when it, when it started to burst in December of 2021 until now, it's down roughly 20%. And that's not the way bubbles burst. When bubbles burst, they tend to go back to their base. And so, in my opinion, we've got a long way to go until you know stocks are fairly priced. I mean, we've got a 19 PE ratio in an economy that's slowing down, where the cost of everything is going up. So, you know, and and you can get five percent on a one-year treasury, whereas you know three years ago you got zero percent on a one-year treasury. So, as a result of that, um, you know, PE multiples are going to contract. Tavi Costa did a great chart. It's up on his thread on Twitter that you can see that shows how PE multiples contract over time. And, um, you know, it's, it's just it's going to be a mess. And so, you know, I think a lot of people in the country, you know, they, they, they determine their spending and their lifestyle to some extent on how their how their savings are doing, how their portfolio is doing. And when you're down 20 percent, 
you know, that's a that's a that's a ding. But if you've been in this game since 08, you know to buy the dip. And so my sense is they're all nervously looking at it and thinking, well, it'll come back. You know, we'll go back to lower interest rates. Inflation will get under control and the stock market will go on to make new highs. And I vehemently believe that, that there's no possibility of that. There's absolutely no possibility of that, that uh, rates are not going to go down. Inflation is not going to go down and the stock market is going to go down. And the next bite in the stock market, the next 20 to 30 percent, you know, decline. And you're going to see people pull back very substantially. And then you're going to start to get the layoffs and, you know, it's just going to it's going to daisy chain all the way through, you know, the, the car repossessions, the houses, everything. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be a complete mess. Yeah. And, and, and I agree with you, I think. But I think a lot of people were anticipating that, Lawrence. But for some reason, it was a little bit more delayed. They were able to squeeze it out a little bit longer and and what you're the making you're making the case for that that's a facade that's not true if you actually look at the fundamentals if you actually look behind the hood so to speak it's not as sound as they would like you to believe at least that's that's my belief yeah that's my belief um that people are people are kind of faking it and uh um there's a lot of hopium going on um and and the, the the availability of credit and credit cards have allowed people to kind of get in trouble, and uh, and that's coming. You know that, that that'll be a problem. So, yeah. And Bitcoin has been at least acting like a, or better said, the market has been treating Bitcoin as a risk on asset. A lot of people are saying that there's a you know a decoupling coming, especially since the halving is next year. What's your what's your thoughts on this? Is Bitcoin going to be affected by this potential recessionary environment that we're entering into? No, I mean, well, yes and no. I mean, so if if we have another March 20 like event, if we have a, you know, a massive sell off, if the stock market collapses, as an example, you know, the correlation of everything kind of goes to one and Bitcoin could dip back down to its low or perhaps even below its low and everything would. And that would be, you know, that would be another global margin call, which, you know, I don't foresee that, but I don't, I also don't think it's a zero probability event. I mean, it could occur. And if it were to occur, um, you know, Bitcoin would get hurt, but I think we're in the process now and you're really starting to see it in my opinion, in the charts of Bitcoin and gold and sound money assets separating from the rest of the market. Do you know what I mean? uh, um, Since last September, uh, when they really made a conscious effort to weaken the dollar, and they have made a conscious effort to weaken the dollar, um, and they, you know, they basically, um, Bitcoin and, and gold have performed pretty well. You know, gold was as low as sixteen hundred, went up to nineteen hundred. Bitcoin was in the sixteen thousand area; it's up in the twenty-three area now. So, um, and I think that separation is going to continue and grow as time goes on. Yeah. So about uh, I would say it was about a week ago, but I think it's fresh is, you know, uh, 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 Augustin Karstens, who is the head of the Bank of International Settlements. He came out in an op ed basically saying that Bitcoin has failed or specifically he said cryptocurrency to be specific. He says cryptocurrency has lost against fiat. What would you what would your response be to that? Yeah, my sense is he doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, he's just, you know, he's talking his own book and he's an idiot. <laughs> you know, the, uh, you know, he doesn't know what Bitcoin is. I mean, he, you know, look, he's right. Crypto is, is you know, fatally flawed and FTX demonstrated that. And 
as you and I both know, every crypto other than Bitcoin is a fraud. Um, but beyond that, um, you know, Bitcoin is going to work and it's going to work extremely well. And, uh, you know, he's just throwing sand in our face because, you know, his his gravy train, his fiat gravy train is threatened by the one form of truly sound money in the world. So some fans of yours, Larry, and I promised that I would ask them. So the first question is, why is it under the gold standard that the middle class grew, but under fiat wealth disparity just continually widens with the middle class slowly becoming extinct? So why is that? Why is it under the why is it under the gold standard that uh, that the middle class was healthy compared to how the middle class is doing during the fiat standard now? Yeah, the, the simple explanation is just the, the cantillionaire explanation, right? I mean, when, when you've got fiat money, um, people can, you know, the people who get the money first benefit the most, they can lever themselves up. When you have gold, before Bitcoin was invented, gold was the only form or the best form of honest money. Silver was a close second. And as a result, um, people couldn't print and create money and benefit from the leverage that that printed money gave them. Um, and although there was fractional reserve banking and we've kind of we've moved from a truly sound money standard in the 1800s into a very unsound money standard on a go forward basis, um, you know, it's it's really been a, a huge transition that's taken place such that people um, who, you know, were financially savvy um, have figured out how to play the fiat game and the fiat game puts money in their pockets and takes it out of everybody else's pocket. And so we've had all this incredible uh, productivity and, and, you know, technology improvements. And yet all those gains have, have you know, gone to the top uh, and they have been evenly distributed. And that's why we've got such enormous wealth disparity. And, and all of that is driven by fiat money. I mean, the, you know, the people who can control the printing press and can play the game and are smart and know how to benefit from the inflation they benefit at the expense of everybody else who pays the higher prices. I mean, and the classic example of this is like, look at a guy like Ken Griffin who runs, um, you know, a big uh, risk arm hedge, hedge fund in New York City. Um, you know, he, he blew himself up several times. And in each case, he got um, bailed out by the Fed, you know, quietly through the back door. And, you know, that's how he's able to buy a $250 million penthouse. You know, and, and, and meanwhile, you know, and, and BlackRock, I mean, they borrow money at zero percent. They buy houses, they rent them back to people they bought them from, you know, at, at higher prices. And so the poor working guy has to pay higher rent for a house that he couldn't afford to buy because he couldn't borrow money at zero percent. And he was considered a credit risk. So he had to pay a much higher rate of interest. So he couldn't compete with BlackRock for that house. And as a result, you know, his excess labor earnings go into BlackRock's pocket. He doesn't get to keep them. And, and this is why, you know, there's just this incredible wealth disparity and unfairness in the economic system as it's currently constituted. I mean, it's it's criminal. It, I mean, it's literally criminal uh, what's been done and uh, to the average people and to the working class of this, this country. And unfortunately, the saddest part of it all is, you know, the people at the top have managed to get the working class of this country to divide up into Team Blue and Team Red and to throw stones at each other. And what they really should all become is part of Team Orange. And as you know, Team Orange is we should, we're going to throw stones at the central bankers and get back to get back to sound currency. And when we do that, the, the you know the game will be fair again. 
Um, but but right now the game is just horribly unfair. I don't know. Did, did I answer that question? That... It, you absolutely nailed it. And I think yeah. you described it perfectly. And I completely agree. I think that, you know, they, what it, they so geniusly do it. They, the orchestration is if a Democrat is in office, the Republicans are like, all of your problems are because of the Democrats, Republicans in office. You know, the Democrats are like, it's because of the Republican and the entire time they continue to print money, the deficit spending, I think it's a trillion a year, then they collect, they spend more money, trillion dollars in a, a year, then they collect in tax revenue. Everyone's right. just being stolen blind, unless you have your money in assets, right? Which is a, a, the minority of the country. So yeah, but how long could they keep this going? And then <laughs> another thing, Lawrence, is they've, they've used wars to, got, to get themselves out of this pickle in the past and I'm looking over at what's going on in Ukraine, and I'm like, these guys are funding a war with a nuclear armed country. What the hell is going on here? Am yeah, I seeing things, Lawrence? $200 billion. $200 billion has gone into, you know, we, we've shipped into the Ukraine. Yeah, no, it's, look, it's part of the macro picture. I mean, I like to try and focus on the monetary piece of the picture, but, you know, what the government does in other respects informs, you know, the, the monetary piece and you know wars are expensive and so how do governments fund wars you know they print money to fund them um one of the things i think it's important to point out too is you know the the fed i, I said this on another podcast but i'm not sure everyone here listening to this would have heard that but you know, it's interesting um preston pish had a really great um chart that he put up on uh, noster that shows that actually global m2 is actually at a record high and it's still growing and even though the Fed balance sheet is slowly declining as a result of quantitative tightening, the, the growth in, um, in uh, the, the central bank balance sheet in Japan and the central bank balance sheet in, uh, in uh, China has outweighed what the Fed has done in terms of cutting. So, so there's almost a little bit of da you know, daisy chaining going on. I see somebody say, Ukraine needs help. What should we do? Just let Russia take over sovereign states? <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to go deep down that whole rabbit hole, but people who haven't taken the time to really understand what's happening in the Ukraine, I don't know where to start. Um, you know, first of all, I mean, somebody this morning compared the Ukraine to Vietnam. Well, as, as I recall, the people in the Ukraine who Russia is trying to help actually speak Russian. And the part of the Ukraine that Russia is trying to help actually was a part of Russia at one point. And those people were also being bombarded by Nazis in the western part of the Ukraine, who um, we supported in a coup in 2014. So, you know, it, it's it's not as simple as the United States is always the good guy, and all these bad countries and guys like Putin are always evil. I mean, I'm not saying Putin's a good guy; he's not. But um, you know, we have to we have to take a look at you know the splinter, the log in our eye before we go after the splinter in the other guys. I mean some of the behavior in the United States. I mean, the military industrial complex has spent between six and seven billion or trillion dollars in the past 20 years fighting wars and killing people. And, you know, that benefits a certain class in the United States, but it doesn't necessarily benefit the world in world peace. And so, you know, my view is if we had the ability to defund these wars, which if you had government on a sound money standard, they wouldn't be able to inflate things in a way where they can pay for these wars, we would we would have a much safer and much healthier world. I mean, Ron Paul said it, and I really strongly believe it. I mean, it, it coincides. It's not it's not a happenstance that the um, 
it's not a happenstance that that century the, the 20th century was also the century where, where we had the most warfare was also the century of fiat currency and these entrenched very powerful like for example, you brought up the military-industrial complex, which benefits tremendously. And I'm going to use your word. And Lawrence, I've been using this word because it's stuck with me, right? You said they do not want to give up this privilege, right? Correct. So the military-industrial complex, they're, they're completely not incentivized to give that up, right? That is Correct. how you fund the endless, endless wars without direct taxation. Because with direct taxation, I firmly believe you'd have a revolution in the streets the next day. That's correct. If people really understood how much they're paying for this thing indirectly. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, people want to, you know, people say inflation is hurting me and inflation is a function of the fact that we shipped, you know, billions of dollars to Halliburton so that, you know, um, basically, you know, Dick Cheney could become a multi-billion or multi-millionaire. So, um, yeah, I, I got to tell you, I got to get rid of this thread because it's just pissing me off so much. Um, uh, these, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to. I mean, if people don't understand, you know, uh, if people don't understand the geopolitics of the situation going on right now, they, they're, they're thinking in fiat terms. Anyone who thinks in Bitcoin terms totally gets the fact that this is all just bullshit, and that these guys are going to start and propagate wars in order to cover up the fiscal and financial, you know, catastrophe that they've created. Right. Um, and that, that's what's, you know, that's what I see going on. And it's sad because, because now we actually have nuclear weapons. So, you know, there's the possibility of lots and lots of people dying in this fourth turning if, if somebody makes a mistake. And, um, you know, to me, that's, you know, that's crazy and sad. I mean, we should, you know, we should basically be negotiating, you know, I would have liked to have thought that nuclear weapons would have been the ultimate thing that would cause everybody to realize that we have to find a non-lethal way of resolving human conflict. And uh, uh, sadly, I don't see that. So, yeah. So, Lawrence, do you believe, right, so this is a fiat standard, this is what it leads to. Would it, would it be safe to say that this war in Ukraine is a another potentially a distraction towards what is actually going on so that's the first question number yeah. two and of course there's no way to know that speculation but number two is do you have faith in people's ability to wake up to this because if a lot you know if you're paying attention you understand what's going on but in my experience what i've noticed is a lot of people just don't care about sound money they are distracted with bread and circuses, their contempt with what they have, their contempt with UBI, their contempt with whatever, you know, whatever it is, they, they don't care. What's the famous line, right? Giving up liberty for a little bit of security. And I've seen that specifically over the last couple of years during the pandemic. And to me, it worries me tremendously because the peaceful revolution, Bitcoin specifically, it does need an element of personal responsibility. People do need to take personal responsibility in order to adopt something like Bitcoin. So is that yeah. something that keeps you up at night? Yeah, it is. And it does. And, you know, I mean, look, the there are always going to be those who would, you know, sell 
you know, sell their liberty for a little bit of security. And as you know, Franklin said, they deserve neither. Um, you know, and, and then there are those of us who are going to um, basically say, you know, we're going to fight this battle because it's a battle that needs to be fought and we're going to win because it's obvious that we're right and it's compelling. And, you know, I think, I think it's a, I think we've got, you know, we've got absolutely everything on our side and in spite, you know, ultimately at the margin, you know, the fact that some people will never get it doesn't really matter. What needs to happen is a very, you know, strong and determined quorum. And that doesn't even have to be 50% needs to, needs to push the issue and push it in the right way. You know, I mean, if, if you look at the American revolution, I mean, there were a lot of loyalists, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like the whole country was saying, Britain, get out of here. You know, it was, it started off as less than 5% and probably at its peak, maybe it was 20% or 30%. But, um, and, and I think that's the same thing here. The other thing that's going to happen is what's going to happen is the, 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 when the fiat really collapses, then there's going to, it's going to be like a wake up call upside the head. Right. I mean, when, you know, look, inflation's bad now, it's going to get worse, right? It's going to get much worse. And as it gets much worse, um, you know, people are going to start to say, hey, you know, what the fuck? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I can't live. I'm, I'm really getting, I mean, and people are going to start screaming about it. And, you know, perhaps at some point it's going to accelerate, you know, to the point where it becomes, you know, Argentinian style you know, 15, 20% a year. And then after that, the next step after that is complete currency collapse. And I think both of those are very realistic probabilities in, in the system as it's now constructed. And so as a result of that, um, you know, if and when those things occur, you know, people are going to, they're going to open their eyes. They're going to, you know, they're not going to, you can't ignore that, right? That's going to be terribly sad because a lot of people are going to be very badly hurt by that. I'm not rooting for that. I'm just saying that that's the likely event given the systems the system as it's currently constructed that's those are the most likely events in, in my view you know the timing of them is certainly you know unpredictable how quickly it happens uh, because it's a it's a crowd sort of thing I mean um, you know right now I mean I, I will say this though with every wave of inflation with every move they make you know more people are aware of the issue right I mean some became aware in 2008 and thought that was it right then and there. Then some followed on, you know, later and some, you know, became aware in 2020 and some, you know, I mean, more and more people become aware with each move on their part. I think the next move on the part of the Fed is that they're going to have to, um, you know, resume a money printing operation of some type because the alternative is worse, which would be a collapse, a financial collapse. And I think when that happens, the, 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 the percentage of the population that says, wow, some, they can never stop you know, it's, that percentage is going to get larger. And if you study all the, all the hyperinflations that have, there have been in history, and I've taken the time to do that as a financial analyst, what you see is that when um, a majority of the people come to conclude that, oh my God, this can never stop. These people are going to continue to print money from now until forever. Then what they then, then you know this is Gresham's law. Then what happens is they naturally say to themselves, "All right, yeah, that is true. I need to get rid of this shit called cash, and so I need to buy stuff. And you know, stuff includes Bitcoin and gold and houses and cars. I mean, anything that's not that you can't print. And you know, and and then as that accelerates, it gets you know larger and faster and goes quicker. 
and you have what you know we call in Austrian economics, as you know, a crack-up boom, because everybody's literally just trying to get rid of the currency that they know can't, you know, can't hold its value, and so that's always the risk, and um, and and that I think that event is coming, but I don't know with certainty the timing. Nobody does, uh, but I, you know, I, I think it's this decade, and I think it's probably in the first half of this decade. I mean. I'm, I used to think it was fat. in 2021 when everything was melting up. I thought, oh, here we go. This is it. And then, amazingly, they, you know, by slamming on the brakes and doing everything they've done, they've managed to kind of calm it down for a while. And so, all right, maybe, you know, maybe in 2021, I was thinking, all right, by 24, 25, this is all going to be over. Somebody asked me on Twitter the other day, uh, do you still believe in that? And I said, well, you know, possibly, but it might be a year or two longer than that. But, but it doesn't matter. I mean, each, each wave shows you, you know, where we're going. I mean, you know, I mean, I've been in gold since it was at $200 an ounce. And, you know, I remember fighting to get through 800. I remember fighting to get through a thousand. I remember fighting to get through 1300. It's 1800, 1900 today. We're going to go through 2000 and it's going to be on its way to 2500. And then at 2500, 3000 will be in, in view. And, you know, I mean, it's just, it's inevitable, right? It, the way I see it, it's inevitable in the way the system is constructed because, you know, the, the, the money printer has to run or else the debt can't get, get service and the economy collapses. And so if you look at what governments do, governments just try to, they try to bribe people to stay in power really is kind of the, the simplest way of looking at it. And, you know, so they, they look at what the people are screaming about the, lo the loudest and they try to address it, right? So, Everyone was screaming about inflation. All right, Powell, you know, tighten things up. Try and get this inflation under control. Fine. He's doing that. Um, and surprisingly, it's kind of working. I mean, not that inflation's getting under control, but, you know, the, the hard money assets haven't done particularly well because of the actions he's taken, right? But, you know, that will change. That narrative will change. And either inflation will come down or it won't. But eventually the economy is going to start to hurt because, you know, 5%, 6%, 7% interest rates, you know, there's going to be a, a, a day of reckoning here and we're highly leveraged. It's a fragile system. Something's going to break. And when that happens, you know, the, the issue is going to be, oh, my God, the economy is blowing up. You know, forget about inflation for a minute. You know, turn the printer back on or else the whole thing's going to collapse. Right. And, and at that point in time, that's when that's when that psychological shift will take place. Uh, again, I don't know to what extent. I don't know if that. I don't know if the next run-up will be the final one that'll send us into hyperinflation. Probably not. I mean, we probably, you know, we probably go to a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollar Bitcoin and three thousand dollar gold, uh, and then you know, they, they they do some more money. They do some more tricks. They raise interest rates. They talk. I don't know. They put on wage and price controls. Who knows what they'll do? They'll do something to mess it up, and and you know, and we'll have a correction. But 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 each correction is to a higher level, right? Um, and so, um, you know, the, the, inf and the inflation continues to build. I mean, we're not, you know, we've got gasoline prices between three and five, kind of depending on where you are and what, what, uh, what level of gas you buy. I mean, you know, we're not going back to a buck 50. We're not going back to two. We're not going back to three. I mean, I was on a podcast the other day. I mean, I remember very clearly being a kid and gas was 26 cents a gallon. It was great. <laughs> I mean, we're not going there again. Right. I mean, they just keep debasing the currency. It's what Foss says. They can't stop. So. What message would you have for my generation? What would you tell us? Because, it, you know, it was your, 
we were talking about this many, many months ago. We were talking about the fourth turning theory and how every generation has, uh, you know, a different role to play. I believe that you said the millennial generation is the savior generation. C please correct me if, if, if I phrase that, yeah. uh, if I phrase that wrong. So what message would you have for us? What, what responsibility has been bestowed to us based on this irresponsible, you know, monetary policy, fiscal, whatever you want to call it? What would you say to us? What yeah. would you say, what do we need to do to fix things, to make things better? Yeah. So, so you guys are the hero generation in the, in fourth turning, you know, terminology, which is to say that, um, you know, the, the system's about to blow up and people are going to have to step up and fix it. And that's going to be your generation. So I, I think the important things for your generation to do, um, are to, you know, I mean, and, and one of the things that's great about your generation is you really like to work in teams. You're not, you're not as individualistic and as greedy as my generation was. We were all very individualistic. We we're also all very greedy. You guys are actually concerned with the common good. I mean, I see that in my kids. I see that in you. I see it in everybody who's in, young and into the Bitcoin area. And I think it's great. And so my sense is that what you guys need to do is recognize that this isn't the way this country always was. Recognize what's broken, which is the monetary and political systems, and fight like hell to get it fixed. And it's not about blue and red. It's about orange and not orange. And it's about, you know, and, and to the extent that it, it melds into the political area, then, you know, we can get into a little bit of, you know, term limits and the constitutional convention and, you know, a lot of the things that would, you know, getting the money out of politics and some of the things that would maybe restore America to, you know, something closer to what the founding fathers had in mind when they drafted the Constitution. Because, you know, we've gone a long way from that. I mean, you get into Congress or the Senate and, you know, you're guaranteed to become a millionaire because it's corrupt as can be. And, you know, you could solve that with term limits. You could solve that by taking money out of politics and, and publicly funding elections, letting people just have to get signatures and then they get a certain amount of money and that's all they get. You know, there, there are ways to solve it. You could, you could solve that by not letting people who serve in government um, then go back into the industries they're supposed to be regulating the way they, they do in the defense and the banking industries, all those things. And so, you know, I would what I would like to see would be, you know, the, uh, a group of the youth of this country coming together and trying to form a third party that said, you know, that's, that's you know, the reform party that 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 really very, very clearly picks apart all of the mistakes that have occurred as a result of the boomers and the mis misdirection that we took that's taken place post World War Two. I mean, Look, we had a really great thing going in World War, post World War II. I mean, the '50s, we were on top of the world, and we just pissed it away through through stupidity and corruption, and um, and you know there, there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff that's great and still is great about this country, but we also let, let you know the the you know we let a certain class of people get control of the political mechanism, and it's made it just brutal for for the average American. You know, I mean, look at what look at what happened to the Midwest. I mean, you know, Ross Perot was right. I mean, NAFTA and, and letting China into the WTO, it just it sucked all those high paying jobs out of the Midwest, you know, and signed with China. We didn't have any reciprocal trade agreement with them. I mean, we couldn't sell shit into China, you know, and yet we let them just take all our jobs. You know, um, you know, the military industrial complex got a hold of, of you know, that that whole thing. And, and you know, we managed to create kind of continual wars. You know, I mean, 
why don't we have nuclear power? Well, because the oil, because the oil and gas industries and all the you know the industries that make so much money off the power that we do have have basically been able to corrupt the political system and and make nuclear you know kind of a non-starter. And yet, you know, we should have you know serious nuclear power if we want to. I mean, you know, why is our infrastructure the way it is, right? I mean, all of these things are a function of a broken, broken system. Having said that, you know, the, the, the monetary collapse that I believe is coming is going to really be a fourth turning. It's going to wipe this slate clean, and it's going to be a lot better on the other side because you guys are smart enough to fix it. You know, if, if, I mean, if, if the youngest generation guided by the older, you know, the gray generation like myself, we'll, we'll advise you and you'll do the work, right? <laughs> And, and you got you guys are going to fix this thing. You're going to stand up and fix it and say, you know, this is it's bullshit. It, the system is totally broken. It's totally bullshit. We can't buy houses. We don't have you know we don't have a fair system in any way, shape, or form. Um, and you know you'll be the biggest voting block in you know 10, 15, 20 years. And my generation will be gone. So um, you know it, it's that's why that's why i consider you guys to be the hero generation i mean I look at you i look at marty bent i look at jack Mahler's, i look at i mean I see perfect examples of this all over the place you know guys who are standing up and saying no this is wrong you know the way it's the way it's set up is wrong um and uh so i you know how in terms of what you can do day to day i think you just spread the word amongst your friends right so um, you know, you, you, you orange pill as many people as possible. You try to get them to get out of the matrix, you know, and look at how broken it is. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah. and it's, it's hand to hand, you know, it's hand to hand. It's really about winning over the hearts and minds, one person at the time, at a time. And it's incredibly difficult and you're dealing yeah. with a well entrenched, uh, media machine that is, I would say their power is fading because more people are getting their information via independent media sources, whether it's a podcast or whether it's Twitter. I, I love Twitter, right? Yeah. But it's almost as if you had this media uh, cartel that was very, very successful at controlling narratives. I remember seeing this Twitter, this tweet, and it, it resonated with me. And it said something like, if social media existed in 2003, we would have not have gone to war with Iraq. And I, and I saw that and I thought it was very, very fascinating. Yeah, I hope, that, I hope that's true. I was around in 2003 and I remember all that. I mean, yeah, no, look, I mean, the, the fact, I mean, decentralization, I mean, we reached peak centralization in, um, you know, World War II. I mean, you know, we kind of, and, and I've talked about this before. I mean, centralization in the beginning was a good thing. I mean, you know, in my view, it really kind of started with, uh, with, with Henry Ford. I mean, you know, the, the assembly line, I mean, brought enormous wealth to, uh, you know, the middle class, right? I mean, we, we figured out how to make things cheaper, quicker. And it was a as a result of a centralized system. And that was good. Um, but we, we ran that. And, and, you know, World War II was peak centralization in terms of killing people. And we figure out how to kill 50 million people really quickly with, you know, gas chambers and some very nasty weapons, including nuclear ones. And, um, you know, I, I think what we're learning or what we should be learning is that centralization has downside and that decentralization is actually a good thing um, at a political level, at a food level, at, at a money level, all of it, um, because 
you know, the problem with a centralized system is if you get a nut at the top and, you know, we've had a few of those here and, you know, Germany had one in the forties. I mean, it, you know, and arguably other countries have them as well. Um, you know, they can do a lot of damage. Right. And so, so humankind, I think, is going to have to evolve into a much more decentralized systems with a lot more checks and balances. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I imagine that our grandkids or maybe our great grandkids will say, you know, can you believe they let anybody have nuclear weapons? I mean, those have been banned for so long that, that nobody would ever consider building one because they know that if they did, you know, they'd face the death penalty sort of thing. I mean, um, you know, that, there's a lot of insanity that has pervaded, um, you know, human thought. I mean, this whole tribal country against country, people against people, it's bullshit. It's total bullshit. We're all the same. Yes. And, and nobody really wants to die, I don't think. So um, most people just want to live their lives in peace and try to add value and raise their family and love one another and so on and so forth. So, but, you know, it doesn't always work out that way because political people are sociopaths. A lot of political people are sociopaths, right? Yeah. A lot of political people are sociopaths. And you said something in the beginning of the, of the pod that really stuck with me. And as long as they have the money printer, it basically gives them the ability to buy votes, right? In a way, right? Oh, because, right. yeah, oh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, that's 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 how it all works, right? I mean, it's you can see where they're going with it. They'll do CBDCs, they'll do universal basic income, um, you know, maybe even social scores, so on and so forth. I mean, look, I mean, there's a you know, there's a real you know I, the other divide. Forget blue red, you know. I mean, there's orange and fiat. Another divide is just kind of statist, you know, libertarian. And uh, there's a big part of this country that, you know, that is statist. I mean, they actually think that government is a good thing. Um, right. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think there might have been a time when the government was limited when it was a pretty good thing. I mean, the federal government, you know, in, in the very early days was pretty damn small and didn't do much. But, you know, that has slowly but surely evolved in the other direction. And uh, it's, it's, it's problematic. I mean, I mean, my view on government for what it's worth is just that it's, it, they ought to be a fair referee. I mean, the government ought to enforce the laws, have the courts, you know, punish criminals. And that's it. All the other stuff can be done, you know, in the market. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I, I feel, especially since becoming a Bitcoiner, you know, I've, I, that belief system has just become bigger and bigger smaller government, you know, let, let people figure it out, let people take the personal responsibility over their lives. Do you believe that Bitcoin could potentially bring back the United? Cause I, I'm an immigrant, you know? So, and I think that a lot of people specifically in this country don't understand um, how privileged they are in a way. Um, not only because the U S is isolated on two coasts, right? So it makes it relatively peaceful, but also being in the country that is the world reserve currency, right? Being able right. to print all the money in the world um, and, you know, all the privilege and all the wealth that, and all the power really that comes with that. And I think that's lost in people. And then, Lawrence, I kind of go through, if you look at history, you know, we, we think this time's different, but this has happened many, many times. I feel like the cycle is, is repeating itself in, in a way and we are on the verge of, of this, of, you know, you said it earlier, this crack up boom. Um, so 
are we repeating history? Is is are we seeing something that has happened throughout? Yeah, it's it's obviously it's never exactly the same, but the pattern is is similar. I mean, this this kind of a sovereign debt crisis occurred, and, and this kind of a uh, a problem occurred in the early 1900s. I mean, World War II, and then World War II really kind of or World War One and World War One kind of continued into World War II. I mean, we've seen this pattern before, and you had a lot of sovereign currency crises then. I mean. Pound was devalued a couple of times. You know, Germany had hyperinflation. Uh, Russia did too. Um, you know, it, it's, it, you know, we had a depression um, because we tried to stay on a sound money standard, even though we devalued gold substantially. And, you know, it, it's, yes, this is a pattern that has repeated itself. And, you know, empires don't last forever, right? I mean, they're, you know, Dalio's book, you can read on it, talks about this, how, you know, the, 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 the reserve currency tends to turn over, you know, over time. I mean, prior to us, it was Britain, you know, um, prior to Britain, it was, um, you know, I guess it was, uh, the Dutch and the, and the Spanish and at one point in time. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, way back when it was, it was the Roman currency and, and, you know, empires, um, generally die the same way that this one is dying, which is, you know, they, they, they get fat and lazy and they coast on their reputation. And they spend too much and they don't, you know, they, uh, I mean, the politicians, you know, have spent way too much money. And as a result, they start debasing the money and that debasement trend continues. And then, you know, eventually the debasement trend becomes a waterfall. And once, once, once the currency is no good, you know, then you're, then you're nothing. I mean, uh, you know, the United States has lived well beyond its means for a lot of years based on the fact that we were the leading country post-World War II. You know, and we established the, you know, the petrodollar and so on and so forth. I mean, and all of those things, I mean, it's not like we're going to fail tomorrow, but all of those, the trends on all of those things are going in the wrong direction for the United States. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's sad. It's, I, I hate to see how poorly managed this country has been. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's been very poorly managed in my opinion, but it is what it is. Um, and. You know, I think that that like all cycles, uh, it will adjust. And I, I don't think it's curtains for the U.S. I just think that we're going to have a much more multipolar world and, and the you know, we're going to return around the world to sound currencies. And that'll be a really good thing. Um, I mean, the, the, you know, the Brighton, I mean, I'm talking about a lot of depressing stuff, right? I mean, fourth turnings are ugly and nasty and things get broke, you know, things get broken. But um, on the other side of that, you know, getting broken, things will get fixed. And fourth turnings don't last forever. And once you come out of one, you know, you, it can be quite good. And if we had sound money, uh, the world would be a much better place. I, I'm absolutely certain of that. Um, and so, you know, and, and if we had great political leadership, we, we, could have, we could have sound money tomorrow. I mean, we could, you know, have a, have a reset and, a, you know, a conversion to it. And, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, would, it would be painful, but, but it could be done. Um, Sadly, though, I, I don't think there's the political will or, you know, the way the system is set up. I don't think anybody's going to go there unless they're forced to go there. Um, and so what I think is going to happen is that, uh, you know, the, the system is going to break down and then that's going to cause everyone to realize that the money was the problem and then sound money will be adopted. And, and, you know, our kids and grandkids will have much better lives living under a sound money standard. And they'll sit around and say, you know, I can't believe these guys allowed you know, 10 people sitting in Washington, D.C. to set the interest rate. I mean, what the hell were they thinking? I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So, 100%. And 100%. And, and, but I'm afraid that, you know, 
but I don't know why I'll be afraid, but basically, yes, our grandkids, my generation will never forget, right? Like the, you know, the greatest generation didn't forget the lessons of World War II. And right. then as time progressed, the lessons of the past were forgotten. And then, you know, you have this, this cycle. And then my hope, Lawrence, is that Bitcoin breaks the cycle. Bitcoin ends it because gold in a way, and, and I'm going to really, I'm going to pull up this tweet that I thought was really fascinating and you were tagged it's by Matt Foley. It says, it seems that every time a gold standard was implemented in the past, ancient Greece, Roman empire, USA, it worked for a while then eventually failed. So why would this time be any different? Um, and then you respond to that, but I'd rather ask you, you know, if we do pull this off, right? If we do, and I think we will, I think Bitcoin's incentives will win the day. Um, how would Bitcoin be different in gold? How would Bitcoin resist what happened to gold? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a uh, couple of things. I mean, one, it's, it's naturally deflationary, whereas gold is not. I mean, the, gold is, the supply of gold in the, in the world is growing at about 2% a year. And in 50 years, we'll have twice as much gold in the world. Um, and gold has an alternative usage, which is, uh, well, there's some, there are very small number of industrial uses, but there also is the jewelry usage. Bitcoin, Bitcoin is pure money based on energy. And it's really the only form of pure money. And the, the amazing thing about Bitcoin that's so unique is, and the other thing is the price of gold responds, or the, the supply of gold responds to the price. It's a commodity. And, you know, I can assure you that if the price, if the price of gold were to triple tomorrow, we'd mine more gold. Right. I mean, we just the supply would increase no matter what happens to the price of Bitcoin supply ain't increasing. That's it. We're done. So so that's the biggest difference that, that Bitcoin is deflationary. And, and we should live, as Jeff Booth has pointed out, we, we live in a deflationary world. We should live in a deflationary world because technology is always improving productivity. And the reason why, you know, the average man has been hurt so bad is that productivity has been stolen through the through the inflation that allows people who can game the system to get all the wealth. Um, but back to, you know, Bitcoin and gold and the gold standard and then both being sound money. So if we went to a gold standard, it would be better than what we're on right now, but it wouldn't be as good as a Bitcoin standard. Um, and in part that's because the, the nobody really knows how much gold there is. Nobody knows where it is. Uh, it's hard to move around. It's hard to audit. It's hard to prove there's, there's fake gold in the sense that they've taken people have taken tungsten and coated it, which is close to the same atomic weight and coated it with gold. I mean, it's, it's difficult to verify, et cetera. I mean, Bitcoin is very, very easy to verify. It's on a ledger. You can see it. You can prove that you've got it by moving a small piece of it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, the, the negative um, on both of them, and I said it in that tweet, and I don't, you pull it up again because I think it's important. Um, you know, I look at my, take away my following, look at my response. Um, Bitcoin does face some of the same paper problems we have. So let's talk about derivatives for a moment. And part of the reason why the price of gold is where the price of gold is, is because there's a lot of paper gold. And, you know, if, if we actually did the math the way it was done in the 70s, when we were on a gold standard or semi-gold standard, at least at the, at the international level, um, if, if you took the money supply figure today and divided it by the gold that the U.S. holds, gold should be at $80,000 an ounce. It's not. It's at 18000 or 1800 an ounce right now. It shows you how much money we've created. And the reason for that difference is that we created a lot of paper gold. Robert Rubin... Larry Summers, you know, Barsky, they did a paper called uh, Gibson's Paradox. And, you know, um, when Clinton was president, I recall very clearly, 
James Carville saying, I want to come back because the bond markets have all the power. And what these guys figured out was if we can, gold is the, is the alarm bell that tells you you're inflating the money supply. And so they figured out if we can sell paper gold, we can keep the price of gold down and everyone will think there's no inflation when in, in reality there is and the economy will look great and I'll get reelected. That's what Clinton thought. And so that was really, the, in my view, the beginning of the serious gold suppression through the sale of paper gold. And I think they do it off the balance sheet. I'm pretty sure they do it through the uh, exchange stabilization fund and a few other things that we can't see and we will never be allowed to audit. But they've intentionally held the price of gold down to keep the fiat game going. Um, and there's nothing to, and, and so when you get into a, when you get into a financial game and everyone's playing and betting on the price of something, if you are the biggest player, it's like being in a poker game. If you're the biggest player with the most money and you can put all your money on the table on a bet and nobody can call your bluff, you win by default. Right. And so in a sense, in some financial games, the people with the biggest balance sheet have got the game rigged where they can win. I mean, as an example, look at the Hunt brothers. They were able to take the price of silver up to 50. They had the silver market cornered. They could have ruined basically everybody who was a supplier. They could have ruined the silver market. And what did the exchange do? They changed the rules. They would they, they changed it to liquidation only. Basically said, sorry, Hunts, we're not going to let you win. And, and that's that's kind of what you know these guys do, the guys who run the government. And and so, you know, Bitcoin is a form of sound money. Um, but who's to say that somebody couldn't get into um, a paper contract and say, well, you know, well, like look at FTX as an example. They, they carried a bunch of Bitcoin in theory on their balance sheet. People gave them money and said, buy Bitcoin for me. Right. They, they, were, they thought if they looked at their account statement, they own Bitcoin. But the fact of the matter is they didn't own any Bitcoin because FTX never went and bought it. So they own paper Bitcoin. They had a claim on Bitcoin against FTX, but FTX hadn't actually bought the coins. And so as a result of that, that kind of a paper derivative, and there are paper derivatives, you know, there's a futures market for Bitcoin and there are a lot of private market derivatives as well. And Glassnode has, has you know, laid this out and Caitlin Long has done a very good job of looking at it as well. And, and so the fact of the matter is we not only have to move to a Bitcoin standard, but we also have to, at a legal level, ban derivatives um, because derivatives are a tool for financial people to manipulate markets, to steal wealth from other people. Full stop. I mean, that's that's all they are. The only way we should, I mean, they started, it started as, you know, a futures contract was for a farmer who was producing corn and General Mills, who was trying to make cereal to say, all right, you know, I want to sell my corn to you and you want to buy at a fixed price and we'll figure it out. And that was a legitimate business contract. I'm, I'm producing something, you're buying something, we're agreeing on a contract. But then what happens is what if, you know, the U.S. government's never gotten into the corn market, not that I'm aware of. What happens if the U.S. government said, well, I'm going to get into the corn market and start playing around with you know buying and selling corn and I can manipulate the price because I'm the biggest player on the block. And that's what's going on with gold. And that could go on with Bitcoin. It hasn't happened yet because you can see the amount of derivatives outstanding, but it's trending in the direction where they're getting more involved in it. And so, you know, to your generation, I would say, you know, when, when we get Bitcoiners in government, when the system has collapsed and we're going to a Bitcoin standard, we get Bitcoiners in government, you know, um, and, and the new rules get written just as the rules were written post the 1929 collapse. We have the new SEC. You know, I think one of the rules that has to be written is that derivatives will be banned, that the only only derivatives allowed will be for legitimate commercial purposes. If you're a farmer selling corn or you're a cereal manufacturer buying corn, you guys can do a derivative contract or oil, whatever, anything. But there's got to be actual physical behind what you're buying and selling. You can't have just financial contracts on top of um, 
you know, there has to be a commercial, you know, interest in it, not not just a financial interest in it. Because if it's all financial interest games, the government, you know, the biggest balance sheet wins, and the U.S. government has the biggest balance sheet right now, and so they can manipulate it in their favor and against those of us who believe in sound money, and they've done that with gold and. I think people who believe that just because all the Bitcoin is on a chain, it can't happen with Bitcoin, they're being naive because, you know, who's to prevent party A from doing a deal with party B on Bitcoin at a fixed price? And whether they have the coins or not doesn't matter. You know, that that price somehow gets into the marketplace. I mean, the, if, if I sell if, if off if off the marketplace, you go, I sell you one coin for twenty thousand bucks. You send me twenty thousand bucks and I say I owe you a Bitcoin. Right. That's 20,000 that did not go into the system to push the price of Bitcoin up. That was a private deal. I, and let's say I don't have the coin, right? I'm just taking a financial bet against you. You're saying you want it to go up and I'm saying I'll pay you if it does go up. And, you know, but that, that didn't move the price in any way, shape or form. So your demand did not get reflected in the supply demand balance. And, and that's, that's the danger of paper. And it's a, it's a big thing it, and it could become an issue. So, Again, to your generation, when we get to the point of writing the laws to fix all this shit, we got to ban derivatives. Yeah. And it, that was one of Caitlin Long's main concerns, right? She calls right. it the rehypothecation and exactly. she keeps doubling down on how dangerous this is. And obviously, she's someone to pay attention to. She she comes from yeah. the belly of the beast, so to oh, speak. Yeah. She, worked she lived Stanford in that world. Exactly. Five years. Yeah. Harvard Law yeah. School grad. She's smart as a whip. And, you know, you've noticed that, I mean, they've gone after her recently because mm -hmm. they're trying to close the barn door after the horse escaped. I mean, you know, FTX, I mean, look, Gary Gensler should, he should resign in disgrace. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous the way that they allowed, you know, everybody to get, you know, taken advantage of by all these crypto schemes that so many smart people, including the leader of, you know, of um, Swan, you know, Corey, who just did a fantastic job. Of documenting. I mean, there's so many of us. I mean, we were, I remember being in Madeira talking with a bunch of the Bitcoiners. We're all like, you know, we just know Sam Bankman fraud is a fraud. You know, we know he's going to get wrecked. It's just a matter of time. We all could see it and knew it, you know, and even Caitlin said she was, she was sending things to regulators that she knew and heard and saying, look, this is not right. I can tell you there's bad stuff going on here and nobody was paying attention. Right. And so, uh, you know, here we are. Right. Here we are. Here we are after, you know, all the and, and again, the I feel bad for the people that put faith in a con man who was not only able to manipulate, you know, people. I, I don't want to name any specific people, but let's say very predominant celebrities that have major followings. But he was also able to fool completely, um, you know, the head of the SEC. Who, if you read the and uh, the New York Magazine article, where he admitted at least there's a positive to this, at least there's a silver lining, where he admitted that Bitcoin is, in his eyes, is different than the rest. But in that article, it was stated many times that Gary Genzer had one-on-one -on -one meetings with Sam Bankman-Fried. Wow, I didn't read that article. It, it, if that's the case, and he couldn't smell the fraud there, I mean. Like I say, he should resign in disgrace. I mean, if I were a senator or a congressman, I would have gone berserk. I mean, this is the guy who's in charge of protecting investors. And I mean, there were, you know, I, I know of people who had hundreds of thousands of dollars at FTX that just got vaporized. And, you know, that's that's wrong and that's sad. And, 
you know, I mean, if, if you know, I mean, even now he's saying all these cryptocurrencies are unregulated securities. Okay, fine. What are you going to do about it? Right. So you're going to, you know, I mean, what, you know, sir, what are you going to do about it? Because that is your job. Why aren't you bringing cases against them? Why aren't you suing them and making them, you know, provide more disclosure? Why aren't you making them register as if they were securities? Right. So. Yeah. Right. 100%. So. Lawrence, I want to use the, you know, the end part of the podcast because we were talking about which, in my opinion, I, I, you know, and I really believe this in my heart. I think it's important to talk about the tough subjects. You have to be uh-huh. real. You have to live in the present. That's the way that I approach it. But I want to end it on a positive light. Right. <laughs> After we get over this hump, right, yeah. this inevitable hump that I feel I know that you you're you, you know you feel it as well. You're anticipating it. What is the world going? What are you most looking forward to in a world on a Bitcoin standard? How would that world differ from today's world, and why would it differ in the first place? Well, I think I think it will be incredibly positive and optimistic. I mean, that's the biggest um, you know the biggest difference from today. I think a lot of people today are you know very depressed about the economic conditions they're facing and you know i mean you, you look at i mean the, the the opioid problem and so many things that are, are a reflection of that um you know I, i'd be glad to never have to listen to another central banker you know lying to me again <laughs> uh you know and i i think i think i think it'd be you know it'd be a time where i think people could really feel good about the future um and and you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I was born in 57 and I grew up in Detroit, in the Detroit area. And, you know, there was a real positivity when I was growing up. We were putting the whole country on wheels. And even though the Vietnam War was a very big negative, there was, you know, there was a lot of money flowing around. It was it was a very positive time. I mean, we had won World War Two and, um, you know, we're still the greatest country in the world, of course. And they murdered the president in 63. But um, you know, in, in general, it, it was just a very positive place and a positive time and things were good and you, you look forward to the future and you thought things were going to be better. It's interesting. I've been to China a bunch of times. I'm not saying they're a good, you know, representative of, of political leadership, but I will say this. Um, the first time I was there in the mid 2000s, I remember very like 2005, I remember very clearly the, the optimism and the positivity of the people. And, and the reason for that was because, and I got to know some of the local people, and the reason for that was because their lives were really getting better. I mean, they had great grandparents who would, you know, almost starve to death under Mao. And, you know, they had an apartment and they had a, you know, they had a motorbike and they had a job and they could eat decent food. And I mean, the, it was just an amazing positivity of it all, like life is good and getting better, you know, and, and um, I think that's the, that's the way life is meant to be. I mean, we're all out there. Um, you know, working hard to make things better and life should get better. I mean, each generation should live better than the prior generation. And given the technology is, as you know, as Jeff talks about, Jeff Booth talks about, I mean, I think some of the, some of the things we're going to see and some of the events and, and the quality of our lives, I think it's going to be, I think we're going to be stunned, you know, in the next, what, what occurs in the next 10, 20, 50 years, just because of how rapidly things are changing. So there's a lot to be very, very positive about, but We've got to shed this broken system um, before we can fully enjoy that, in my opinion. Yes. And, and, uh, and we're shedding it now, but it's, it's messy, right? So, yeah. yeah, to say the least, it is 
and it, and it's a battle. You know, it's a battle. And it is a battle. Yeah, because there's the no people, other... the people on the other side. The people who have the privilege, they don't want to give it up. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why you see the mongers, you know, pushing back, and that's why you know, that's why you got. I mean, there are a lot of people throwing sand in our face, and you know, and that's because they're they benefit enormously from the system as it is now constructed. You know, it, it, it has served them incredibly well and they think they're geniuses, you know, um, and, and they're not. They just they got in front of the right wave at the right time um, and, and they're not they're not geniuses. And, they're you know, I, I think that's going to that's going to be one of the pleasing things for me to see is some of these people, um, you know, getting a better understanding of, of they were in the right place at the right time as opposed to being as smart as they think they are. Are we going to win? Lawrence. Oh, there's no doubt we're going to win. Yeah, Marty Bent said at first he's right. Yeah, we're going to win. There's no way. Hey, look, it's an idea whose time has come. I mean, it's, you know, the thing, even, even at today's price, I mean, this is the best performing financial asset in the history of the world ever, you know, on a return basis, on a sharp ratio basis, on any way you want to measure it. It's the most asymmetric bet ever. And, you know, Foss and I pound the table on this. I mean, if you don't have some piece of your net worth in Bitcoin, you're nuts. And I don't care if it's only 1%. The only wrong answer is zero. Because this thing's going up 100 times, 1,000 times where it is today. Yeah, somebody put up there the tip of the spear. Absolutely. Bitcoin is the tip of the spear. We are going to charge up this hill and we're going to kill all these fiat masters. I mean, they, I mean, there's just no doubt. I mean, there's just absolutely no doubt it's going to happen. And so... And that's what's kind of fun about it all. I mean, in spite of the, you know, the ups and downs and the bull and bear markets, all the other crap and all the noise they throw in our face is, you know, if you really step back a moment, I mean, we are winning, you know, you yeah. know I mean, we're, you know, I, I was around in 2013, 2016, 2017. I mean, there were a lot of other times when I was more concerned about whether we're going to win. I mean, now it's like now the ball is definitely rolling. So, yeah, we're going to win. No doubt. I love that. Bitcoin is the metaphorical tip of the spear. Oh, yeah. To slay to slay the beast. I, I love that. I love that. Anyways, Lawrence, I don't want to take more of your time. It's always an honor and a privilege oh, to have stop. you. No, I really enjoy talking to you. You always, you always seem to take me in the right direction. So it's a lot of fun, Nico. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to put you backstage for a second, close out. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Another episode of Simply Bitcoin IRL. Love you all. See you tomorrow for the live show. 